It's January 1st, 1981. The town of St. Paul, Minnesota is covered in a blanket of snow. Fresh flakes drift down on empty streets. Most New Year partygoers have already called it a night. Inside the police station, officers sip coffee and count down the hours until they can clock off and head home. It's been a relatively quiet night. That is, until 3 a.m., when a call comes into the switchboard. An officer answers it, frowning slightly as he listens. The voice, it's a man speaking, but far more high-pitched than he'd expect. Distressed, bordering on crying. This is an emergency. Please send a squad to Pierce Butler Road, the man says. Malberg Manufacturing Company. Please send an ambulance, too. There's a girl hurt there. Can you tell me what happened to her? I told you, she's lying on the ground in the back by the railroad tracks by the entrance. Hurry, the man says, sounding increasingly agitated. What's the address? I don't know. Who are you? Police race out to Pierce Butler Road. When they arrive, they see a naked woman lying in a snowbank. She's been badly beaten. Multiple injuries to her head and neck, some so severe that parts of her brain are visible. One officer bends down beside her, checking for a pulse and fearing the worst. He breathes a sigh of relief as he feels the faintest of flutters beneath his fingertips. The woman's alive, for now at least. But there's no sign of the man who called the police and alerted them to this woman's condition. Who was the mystery good Samaritan that might just have saved her life with his phone call? And why hasn't he waited with her until help arrived? 16 years will pass until police discover who he is. His identity will be revealed in an unexpected deathbed confession. But by then, no one will think of him as a friendly do-gooder. Instead, he'll be known by another name entirely. The weepy-voiced killer. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Paul Michael Stefani, of the words he spoke as he was dying. It's about a man raised by devout Catholic parents to believe confession is good for the soul, a crumbling life that leads him to commit unthinkable crimes. It's about the murderer who begged police to stop him before he killed again and the deathbed confession that finally gave closure almost two decades after his heinous crimes. I'm Estefania Hageman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in LA, and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy 
talk to Sudo's men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. The early hours of the new year pass, and in St. Paul, Minnesota, police search the strange scene they've been called to this morning. The young woman is lifted from the snowbank and placed carefully on a stretcher while police and detectives try to get to the bottom of this mystery. Who is the injured woman? Why was she so brutally attacked? And where is the man who called it in? It doesn't take them long to answer this first question. Police find her clothes scattered nearby, and in her jeans pocket, they discover her ID. The woman's name is Karen Potak, a 20-year-old local college student. A phone call with Karen's family confirms that she'd been out celebrating New Year's with her sisters. Karen had left them partying and decided to walk home alone. It was on her journey back where she was so brutally attacked. The ferocity she's been beaten with is disturbing. Buttons from her blouse are found as far as 60 feet away from her body, suggesting the attack was frenzied. However, There's little evidence at the scene to help police piece together what exactly happened and who was responsible for the attack. Thankfully, paramedics arrived in time to save Karen, and she slowly regains consciousness in spite of her extensive injuries. She suffered brain damage, though, and isn't able to remember anything about who attacked her or why. The only potential witness is the man who called it in, But whoever he is, he hasn't come forward. With little else to go on, police are forced to admit defeat. But five months from now, Karen's case will snap back into the spotlight. And when it does, police begin to fear they have a serial killer on their hands. It's June 3rd, 1981 and the residents of St. Paul, Minnesota are getting set for summer. On the outskirts of town, a group of teenagers head out to a field next to an unfinished section of highway. One of them has brought a football, and they take up positions, three points on a triangle, tossing high, looping passes to one another. They spread out a few steps more, smiling and chatting as they fall into the catch-and-throw rhythm. Eventually, one of them misjudges, and the ball spirals over his head, bouncing into the undergrowth behind him and out of sight. He trots over, peering into the long grass. But instead of their ball, 
he spots something else. A flash of color, bright red. He takes a few tentative steps forward, wondering what it could be. But he soon wishes he hadn't. It's the body of a young woman, lying face down, dead. In terror, the boys race away to call the police. And before long, the field is swarming with cops. Other than the body itself, there's little in the way of evidence to suggest who she is or who killed her. She's moved to the medical examiner's office for autopsy. The medical examiner counts a horrifying total of 61 stab wounds and tells detectives that he believes she was killed with an ice pick. This unusual weapon of choice will prove pivotal in cracking the case in the days to come. While examining the body, detectives found a locker key pressed against the woman's skin. With no other clues as to our identification, this key could be their one chance to discover who the dead woman is. Police trace it to the local Greyhound bus depot. When they find and open the right locker, there are two bags inside. Along with clothes and books, they find ID. The woman's name was Kimberly Compton. Tragically, Kimberly Compton was only 18 years old when she died. And as if her death isn't heartbreaking enough, police discover that she had moved to St. Paul the very same day she died. She hadn't long graduated from high school in Wisconsin and came here to look for a job. Her family describe her as a typical small-town girl, trusting, friendly, and easy to get along with. There's nobody they can think of who'd want to hurt her. So who committed this atrocity? And where are they now? Two days later, a call comes into the switchboard at the St. Paul PD. The man on the other end of the phone doesn't identify himself, but his voice is distinctive, an octave higher than what police expect. Will you find me? I can't stop myself. The man says, I keep killing somebody. I don't know why I had to stab her. He continues, I'm so upset about it. The caller sounds on the verge of tears. At first, police don't know whether to take him seriously. As unsettling as it seems, prank calls aren't uncommon. Is this someone's idea of a sick joke? However, the mysterious caller sounds deadly serious. I just stabbed someone with an ice pick, he says, sharing a chilling detail that grabs police attention. Kimberly Compton was just murdered with an ice pick, but this information hasn't been made public yet. Starting to believe they're on the phone with a man who murdered Kimberly, police desperately try to trace the call. But frustratingly, the man hangs up before they can pinpoint a location. But all is not lost. Just two hours later, the same high-pitched, weepy voice wails eerily down the line. Don't talk, just listen, he tells them. I'm sorry what I did to Compton. I couldn't help it. Any lingering doubt there may have been evaporates immediately. This man is Kimberly Compton's killer. 
his next line sounds flippant, like he's promising to be on his best behavior from now on. I'll try not to kill anybody else, he says. There's a click and he's gone. This time though, he's made a crucial error. He's stayed on long enough to allow police to trace his call. It came from a phone booth out at the bus depot. Not wanting to waste another second, officers pile into cars and tear through town at speed sirens wailing. They're hoping to finally catch the mysterious killer at the scene, or at least find a clue as to his identity. By the time they get to the bus depot though, he's vanished. None of the witnesses they interview remember seeing anyone. Attempts to dust for prints prove futile. Way too many people have used the booth to make anything they find useful. Police even set up surveillance for days afterwards, but it yields no results. And so they turn to the one piece of evidence they have, the phone call. Why would a killer call to confess? Does he really want to be stopped? Or is it all part of a twisted game he's playing? The killer's voice is so memorable that detectives decide to go back through other calls linked to unsolved crimes and see if he's phoned in before. It isn't long before they find a match. Kimberly Compton may not have been this man's first victim. Over the next few days, detectives sift through old calls. It's painstaking work, but eventually pays off. After trawling through hundreds of previous recordings, they come across one from five months earlier. A weepy-voiced man directing them to go help Karen Potak, the young woman found in a pile of snow on New Year's Day. Police compare the two voices and are convinced it's the same man. The worry now is that if they're right, despite the man's apparent remorse, these attacks could just be the start. They could have a serial killer on their hands. Police throw their best detectives onto the case, analyzing the calls, searching for evidence, and comparing the two girls to see if they had any mutual connections. But after a few weeks, they hit a dead end. So police look to the media to help identify their mystery caller. Segments of the killer's calls are released to the public. They're broadcast on the local news in the hope that somebody somewhere might recognize the voice. It's this public sharing of the audio and the press involvement around the man with a chilling, high-pitched whining voice that leads to the name, the weepy-voiced killer. All in all, police receive over 150 tips from people claiming to know whose voice it could be. One by one, these are investigated and gradually discounted. Despite the huge publicity the case attracts, it fails to generate any major leads. But that all changes two months later in August when police receive a call about domestic abuse. What starts as a routine visit will soon take an incredible turn. Police arrive at a small house in St. Paul where they've received a worrying call about domestic abuse. The suspect, a man called Alan Lopez, lives with his parents and sister. He's barricaded everyone inside the house holding them hostage as he threatens them with a loaded gun.
Unable to get inside for fear of how Lopez will respond, police call the house phone and try to calm Lopez down. But when Lopez answers, he makes a shocking confession. He tells officers that he is the man who killed Kimberly Compton. At this claim to be a murderer, police swarm into the house, overpowering Lopez. Tragically, they're too late to save his family, who have all been killed by Lopez before they could set foot inside. As he's handcuffed and taken into custody, Lopez reiterates his claim about Kimberly Compton, insisting that he's her killer. But police will need more than this to secure a conviction. Background checks reveal that Lopez is no stranger to violence. He has a history of committing assaults and has previously been hospitalized after struggles with mental health. Detectives try to trace his movements on the day Kimberly Compton was killed. If he was near the scene of the crime, this could prove that he's their killer. Frustratingly, they draw a blank. Next, they turn to the best piece of evidence they have, the recording of the call the killer made to St. Paul PD. They compare the audio they have from the standoff at Lopez's house. Will it be a match? The two voices could not sound any more different. Aside from his frantic claims that he killed Kimberly Compton, there's no evidence that Lopez is the weepy-voiced killer. But why then did he say he was her murderer? In February 1982, while Lopez is spending time in custody for the murder of his family, police are no closer to finding the man who attacked Karen Potak and killed Kimberly Compton. They've continued to peel back the layers of Lopez's life, hoping to come across something that could link him to Kimberly's murder, or at least explain why he told police he'd killed her. However, their investigation suffers a major setback when Lopez takes his own life in prison. Has he just taken the secrets of Kimberly's death to the grave with him? Police begin to worry this may be the case as the months stretch out and they receive no more weepy-voiced calls. Perhaps they had the right man all along. But six months later, in August 1982, police find out just how wrong that assumption is. Hi, listeners. Estefania here. We hope you enjoy this trailer for Noiser's new show, Detectives Don't Sleep. Listen wherever you get your podcasts with new episodes airing every Tuesday. What makes a great detective? If you arrived at a crime scene, would you have what it takes to crack the case wide open? Would you spot the vital clue that everyone else has missed? Could you unravel the suspect's perfect alibi? And could you confront a murderer? Introducing Detectives Don't Sleep, the new whodunit podcast from Noiser. Each week, we'll take you beyond the police tape to shadow the real detectives who worked history's most intriguing cases. You'll be right there, solving a murder on the beaches of the Bahamas, busting neo-Nazi art dealers in the back streets of Europe, and unmasking con men in Beverly Hills. These detectives, they all have one thing in common, they can never truly rest until they've closed the case. Listen to Detectives Don't Sleep wherever you get your podcasts. It's August 6th, 
1982. Over one year has passed since Kimberly Compton's body was found in a park in St. Paul. A paperboy zips along a path that runs parallel to the banks of the Mississippi as it arcs through Minneapolis. He cycled the tree-lined route countless times before. He's almost finished his round when he spots something glinting by the side of the path. He hops off his bike to investigate. It's a pair of glasses lying on the ground. The lenses have caught the early morning sun. He looks around to see if he can spot who has dropped them. Over by the tree line lies what looks like some kind of dummy or mannequin. The boy walks over to it, bends over and prods one of the feet. He jumps back in horror. This is no dummy. It's the body of a woman. The boy staggers backwards and rushes off to call the police. When detectives arrive, they're struck by the savagery of the attack that killed this poor woman. She's been stabbed 106 times. There's nothing at the scene to identify her, and the autopsy doesn't yield any significant clues. As detectives work the case, they develop a theory based on where and how she was killed. Drag marks on the ground suggest she has been moved. This implies that whoever killed her didn't panic and flee. They took time to move her. Could this mean that this isn't their first kill? Police have no way of knowing where and when the killer will strike next. On August 8th, a call comes in to the Minneapolis PD switchboard. The voice is instantly recognizable. I'm sorry I killed that girl. Kimberly Compton was the first one over in St. Paul. We'll never make it to heaven. This chilling call proves two things. First, that Alan Lopez was not the weepy-voiced killer. And second, that this latest death is linked to the two previous attacks, the death of Kimberly Compton one year ago and the attack on Karen Potak in 1981. All three are the work of the weepy-voiced killer. Minneapolis police reach out to their counterparts in the nearby town of St. Paul to let them know the murderer has made contact again. The FBI is called in to help build a profile of the mysterious murderer and breathe new life into the case. But they struggle to find much useful information about the weepy-voiced killer. All they know is that he seems obsessed with brutally attacking women and is apparently crippled by a need to confess. The FBI believe that there's a method to the killer's haunting calls. They don't think he wants to be caught, but rather likes the attention. FBI agents advise police that he's not likely to turn himself in anytime soon and seems to enjoy this twisted game. The real worry is, if he doesn't come forward and police can't find him, when and where will it end? Not long after the latest victim is found, a mailman is emptying a mailbox near the Greyhound bus terminal in St. Paul. It's the place that Kimberly Compton, the weepy-voiced killer's first murder victim, arrived at the day she was murdered. It's also the location police tracked one of his phone calls to. Inside, nestled amongst the letters, the mailman finds a purse. Curiosity getting the better of him, he opens it and finds some ID. 
The purse belongs to a lady called Barbara Simons, a 41-year-old nurse from South Minneapolis. Thinking it's just another piece of lost property, the mailman hands the purse and ID into the police station. Unknowingly, he's just given them the name, age, and occupation of the weepy-voiced killer's latest victim. Barbara Simons is their Jane Doe. At once, detectives speak to her friends and family. Amongst the snippets of information they gather, they're able to confirm where she was the night she was killed. Barbara Simons was enjoying a few drinks at the Hexagon Bar in southeast Minneapolis. When they speak to the bartenders, one of them tells police that he saw a man drinking with Barbara that night. He was a white, muscular man in his early 40s, around six feet tall with a dark mustache. Is this man the weepy-voiced killer? Hoping that this physical description will help them find their suspect, detectives sift through mugshots of anyone in the local area with a history of violent assault. They start with 147 pictures and narrow it down to just eight based on the bartender's description. One of the detectives takes the snapshots down to the bar. The bartender recognized Barbara's drinking companion straight away and points him out. Finally, the police have a suspect. His name? Paul Michael Stefani. Detectives start digging into Stefani's past to see exactly who they're dealing with. As it turns out, Stefani has a history of violence and was convicted for assault in 1976. Adding to this, police unearth an interesting fact about one of his jobs. In 1977, he was fired from working as a janitor at the Malberg Manufacturing Company in St. Paul. It's the very same location where Karen Potak was found unconscious on New Year's Day, 1981. This, along with his history of assault and the bartender's confirmation that he was Barbara Simon's drinking partner, leads police to believe these are not coincidences. Paul Michael Stefani becomes their number one suspect in the weepy-voiced killer case. Now that he's their suspect, the first action St. Paul police take is to set up a surveillance team outside of Stefani's home. If he is indeed their man, they need to keep a close eye on him so that he can't hurt anyone else while they build their case. Police watch his every move for the next two weeks, desperate not to let him out of their sight. They know that just one mistake could prove fatal for an innocent woman. It's the evening of August 21st, 1982. The surveillance team watches Stefani saunter out of his apartment and slide into his car. He pulls out slowly and they tuck in behind him as he joins a stream of traffic. Police tail him for some time, speeding along interstates, winding through narrow streets, sitting in traffic in residential blocks. They follow him as far as Minneapolis, but then disaster strikes. One minute he's there, his brake lights glowing in front of them. The next, he isn't. Detectives have no idea if Stefani spotted them and gave them the slip, or if it's just rotten luck. Either way, Stefani is nowhere to be seen, and a potential killer is driving unchecked around the streets of Minneapolis. In a panic, 
the surveillance team do their best to locate him. They call in support, alert other PDs in the area, but their efforts are met with no success. All they can do now is wait and see where he turns up. They don't have to wait long. Several hours later, a call comes into the St. Paul Police Department. The man on the other end says a young woman has been attacked. She's been stabbed repeatedly with a screwdriver by an assailant who has since fled the scene. When first responders arrive, they find the victim, 21-year-old Denise Williams, in critical condition, but alive. She's taken to a hospital where she's quickly treated, and miraculously, she survives. Just hours later, when she's in a stable condition, police interview her. Denise Williams tells them that she had been hitchhiking to a party when a man picked her up. He drove her to a warehouse in Northeast Minneapolis. The next thing she remembers was him stabbing her over and over again with a screwdriver. Denise explains to officers how she fumbled around in the dark for a weapon of her own and found an empty Coke bottle. She smashed it across his face, buying herself crucial seconds to escape. Her attacker followed her and tried to continue his assault. Fortunately, he was stopped by the passerby who called it in. Just days after telling police this story, Denise Williams will make a few crucial changes. She'll admit that she wasn't really hitchhiking to a party. She's a sex worker, and the man who attacked her was a customer. While Denise receives treatment for her injuries, their surveillance team looking for Stefani returned to their position outside his apartment that same night. But when they arrive, a confusing scene greets them. An ambulance is waiting outside, bathing the apartment block in flickering blue and red. The surveillance team checks in with dispatch to find out what's going on. Officers tell them that Stefani made a call to the police station tonight. I'm all caught up. I got beat up and I'm bleeding. Stefani is bleeding profusely from his arm, face, and head when paramedics find him in his house. But police have little sympathy for the injured man. They've started putting two and two together. Stefani's cuts and Denise's claims that she attacked a man with a glass bottle. The coincidence cannot be ignored. Detectives rush back to the hospital and interview Denise once more. They show her a set of mugshots, including Stefani, and ask if she recognizes any of them. Despite the exhausted, injured state she's in, Denise doesn't hesitate for even a second. She points to the mugshot of Stefani and swears he is the man who attacked her tonight. It's the break they've been hoping for. Once he's received basic treatment for his injuries, police bring Stefani into the St. Paul PD for questioning. They pray that this time, after two years and four brutal attacks, they finally have their man. Later that evening, Stefani sits across from Detective Don Brown of the Minneapolis PD in an interview room in St. Paul. Bloody cuts are visible across his nose and a large patch of gauze is taped to one cheek. It would be easy to feel pity for him if police didn't suspect him of being a serial killer. Detective Brown asks Stefani what happened. Stefani replies that he's been the victim of a home robbery and was beaten up when thieves burst into his apartment. 
Detective Brown listens carefully to Stefani's voice, looking for any hint of the high-pitched voice they've come to know so well. Disappointingly, Stefani talks low and even. His voice is calm. But Detective Brown has a plan to unsettle him. He flips open a folder he's brought into the room. Inside are pictures of each of the weepy-voiced killer's victims, their faces and bloodied clothes. The effect is instant. Stefani leaps to his feet and pushes away from the table. You're not gonna pin those on me, he wails to Detective Brown. It's not what he says, but how he says it. The low, controlled tone of before is gone, replaced by a piercing, high-pitched moan. One that Detective Brown knows only too well. It's identical to the recordings he's listened to dozens of times already. There's no doubt in Detective Brown's mind, Stefani and the weepy-voiced killer are one and the same. Detective Brown now has enough evidence to place Paul Michael Stefani under arrest. Stefani's latest victim, Denise Williams, is certain that Stefani was her attacker, and the bartender from Minneapolis confirms that Stefani was the man he saw with Barbara Simons the night she died. As a result, the district attorney starts to build the case against him, leading up to his trial for murder. The DA is convinced that Stefani is guilty of more than just the attack on Denise Williams and the murder of Barbara Simons. He wants to link this to the attack on Karen Potak way back on New Year's Day, 1980, as well as the unsolved murder of Kimberly Compton in 1981. The problem, though, is proving it. Apart from the weepy-voiced phone calls, there is nothing to connect Stefani to these older crimes. Wanting to play it safe, the DA decide to only charge Stefani with the attack on Denise Williams and the murder of Barbara Simons. In the build-up to his appearance in court, they start picking apart his life, hoping to build a profile that will not only prove his guilt, but explain why he carried out these brutal attacks. In the following weeks, the district attorney finds out several interesting facts about Paul Michael Stefani. He's the youngest of 10 children and grew up near the town of Austin, Minnesota. His parents divorced when he was young and his mother remarried in 1947 when Stefani was three years old. Both she and his stepfather were staunch Catholics. And his stepfather had a temper. When any of the children annoyed him, he had a tendency to smack them on the head. On several occasions, he sent Stefani flying down flights of stairs, badly bruising his small body. Outwardly though, they were just another God-fearing family and nobody had any reason to intervene to protect the kids. In the mid-1960s, when Stefani reached his early 20s, he left for St. Paul. He moved around jobs, finding work as a janitor and a shipping clerk. Stefani met his future wife, a lady by the name of Beverly Leiter, and shortly after they married, they had a daughter. On the surface, there's nothing extraordinary about his life. But in the late 70s, Stefani's world was tipped on its axis. His marriage crumbled not long after his daughter was born. Stefani's wife moved out, taking their daughter with her. He never saw either of them again. He struggled to find romance after the divorce. 
one girlfriend left him to go home to Syria for an arranged marriage. Stefani's life seems to have been one of rejection and abandonment. He struggled to find a purpose in life and was repeatedly unlucky in love. But are these traits enough to make him a killer? Detective Brown certainly thinks so. He believes that the constant rejection Stefani faced may have been the spark that ignited the desire to harm others. What's more, his strict Catholic upbringing seems to have influenced his actions. The idea that you ask for forgiveness for your sins ties in perfectly with what the weepy-voiced caller has been saying all these years. It's possible he believes that confessing his crimes to police would absolve him of his sins. It takes the district attorney 18 months to gather all their information about Paul Michael Stefani. But now they're ready, and the weepy-voiced killer is finally about to stand trial for murder. It's February 1984. Tom Foley, the Minneapolis district attorney, stands before the county court to present his case. Stefani hasn't admitted a thing about his involvement and Foley's case rests in a large part on the phone call recordings the killer made. In an attempt to prove that it's Stefani's voice, he calls a voice expert to the stand. The judge, however, rules that the expert's testimony should not be permitted, saying it lacks probative value. Foley is undeterred and decides to play hardball. If he can't have an expert, he'll use someone who knows the defendant as well as anyone. He calls a member of Stefani's family, his sister Judith, to the stand. She sits in the witness box, eyes glistening with tears as the 911 calls are played, one after the other. Eventually, Judith nods her head and confirms in a voice thick with emotion that the voice is that of her brother Paul. Next, Foley brings forward eyewitness testimony from Denise Williams, and the bartender who saw Stefani drinking with Barbara Simons. Although his case lacks significant physical evidence, this testimony is strong. Stefani's sister Judith, Denise Williams, and the bartender all confirm that he is the weepy-voiced killer. Days later, on February 28th, the jury files back in they don't hesitate to return their verdict. Guilty on both counts. Stefani is sentenced to 18 years for the attack on Denise Williams and 40 more for the murder of Barbara Simons. Following his guilty verdict, Stefani is taken away to Oak Park Heights Prison to serve his sentence. As he disappears behind bars, so too does the attention of his case. Gradually, it fades away into another sordid serial killer story. But it leaves a stain on two families. Karen Potak, the woman many believe to have been Stefani's first victim, wants to see justice served for her attack. Three years after police found her on New Year's Day, she's still suffering from damage he did to her body. Also, the family of Kimberly Compton are not yet satisfied. They along with many others, believe that Stefani murdered Kimberly. But without hard evidence, it seems as though they'll never get the closure they've hoped for. That is, 
until an eerie phone call drifts into police switchboards once more and catapults the weepy-voiced killer case back into its gruesome spotlight. It's 1997, 13 years since Paul Michael Stefani was locked up for murder and assault. Joe Corcoran is one of the officers who worked the weepy-voiced killer case back in the 1980s. He'd been a sergeant at the time, but he's risen up through the ranks to lieutenant now. A call comes through from a guard at Oak Park Heights Prison, the penitentiary where Paul Michael Stefani is being held. What the caller has to say takes Corcoran by surprise. Stefani, now aged 53, wants to talk. He's asking for a favor in return for which he promises to come clean about other offenses. Corcoran sends two detectives to meet the convicted killer. What he wants is quite simple. Some photographs of his mother's headstone to keep with him in his cell. Corcoran agrees to the simple request, and as soon as Stefani gets the pictures, he honors his promise. Sitting across from Corcoran in a small prison cell, Stefani admits that he has terminal cancer. He's been given less than a year to live. In accordance with his strict Catholic upbringing, he believes that he needs to confess all of his sins before it's too late. In a low, weak voice, Stefani tells Corcoran that everything the police suspected of him back in the 1980s is true. Everything they feared, but were unable to prove. Stefani claims responsibility for the New Year's Day attack on Karen Potak and the brutal murder of Kimberly Compton. This brings his tally to two murders and two assaults. But Stefani isn't done yet. In a shocking twist detectives didn't see coming, he confesses to a third murder, one they had no idea was linked to him. Stefani's signature had always been the emotional, high-pitched phone call confessions that followed his crimes. After he committed this third murder, there was no such call, meaning no connection was ever made. But there's a problem. Stefani's memory is hazy. He can't remember his victim's name or address, but recalls that he drowned her in her own bathtub. Stefani has more information to offer, he can remember the layout of his victim's house and describes it to Corcoran. He also recalls that he took the woman's purse and pushed it into a nearby mailbox, just like he did with Barbara Simons. But he doesn't give Corcoran any more information than this and stops talking soon after. It's clear that he thinks he's upheld his end of the bargain and the meeting is now over. As Corcoran leaves Oak Park Heights prison, He's perhaps filled with dread at the uphill struggle awaiting him. He needs to find out who Stefani's third murder victim was. After days of combing through old unsolved cases, detectives find what they're looking for. In July, 1982, a month before Stefani tried to kill Denise Williams, a woman called Kathleen Greening was found dead in her home. Kathleen was a 31-year-old school teacher, and her death was recorded as undetermined. Greening's husband was the main suspect at the time, although he always denied any involvement. 
Corcoran checks the details Stefani's given him, the layout of the house and what he did with her purse. And sure enough, it's a match. The final confirmation that he's telling the truth comes when detectives look at Kathleen Greening's phone book. They flick through, scanning the pages, then stop. Their eyes widen in horror as they fix on one entry, a listing for a Paul S., complete with Stefani's own number. Kathleen's killer's name had been staring them in the face all along. It's not clear how or where they met or what their relationship was, but there's no doubt in detectives' minds now that Stefani's deathbed confession was true. He killed Kathleen Greening. This revelation captures the imagination of the press, and a fresh wave of coverage hits the headlines. Several local news stations reach out to talk with Stefani. Caroline Lowe, a reporter at WCCO, manages to arrange an interview with him. It will be one of the most surreal experiences of her career. Caroline Lowe makes the trip out to Oak Park Heights in the summer of 1997. She sits nervously waiting for Stefani to show. For Lowe, this almost unprecedented access to a killer could prove invaluable to helping people understand why he did what he did. Outside the room, she hears footsteps approaching. Stefani appears at the door. She studies him as he's escorted to his seat. His once dark hair has faded to silver, but despite his age, he's still a big, powerful man. It's not hard to imagine how easy it would be for him to have overpowered his victims. Stefani slides into his chair and starts to chat away as if they're two friends discussing the weather. When asked why he killed the three women, Stefani's answers are vague. He tells her how he would sit in his car at night, trying to make sense of the thoughts running through his head. He even describes hearing voices telling him to kill. Even as Lo listens, there's a lightness to Stefani's voice. Not quite the high-pitched, weepy tone of his prior confessions, but it's distinctive nonetheless, an octave higher than she'd expect. Stefani talks to Lowe about the Kathleen Greening murder that police had no idea he committed. When he describes it, a chilling smile plays across his face, almost as if it's a fond memory. The theory that detectives had about the role his faith played comes up too. Stefani tells Lowe how after one of the murders, he went to church and wept. Stefani talks to the reporter about his health and how he doesn't have long left. All he wants to do now is make what little amends he can and come clean. Hours later, when Caroline Lowe leaves the prison, she's filled with a mixture of emotions about the interview. She's aware that it doesn't give all the answers that the grieving families of Stefani's victims hoped for, but it's the nearest they'll get to closure. At the very least, now there's no doubt as to who is to blame for Karen Potak, Kimberly Compton, and Kathleen Greening. A year after giving the interview, on June 12th, 1998, Paul Michael Stefani dies in the infirmary of Oak Park Heights. It's the end of a long road for the families of his victims, one that has been prolonged by the media attention of his trial his years of silence, and his deathbed confession. 
Maybe now, with his death, they'll be able to find the peace they've so long deserved. Detectives may never be able to fill in all the gaps of his murders, and the questions of why he killed those women will continue to plague them. But at least they can be certain of two things. Stefani was the weepy-voiced killer, and his chilling, high-pitched, wailing cries will never haunt Minneapolis again. Next week on Deathbed Confessions, we meet Blanche Taylor Moore, a wealthy widow with a shady past. As Blanche goes through life, mysterious deaths seem to follow her. Starting with the tragic death of her father, the men around her gradually disappear. No one can work out what happens to them, and suspicion gradually falls upon Blanche. But in 1989, a deathbed confession from beyond the grave adds a shocking twist to her story. It suggests that the men's blood may be on someone else's hands. Can this sudden deathbed confession be trusted? Or is Blanche Taylor Moore, in fact, a killer? Find out next week on Deathbed Confessions. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Associate producer, Nicole Edmonds. Written by Rob Scrag. Supervising editor, Jane O. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Sound design by Cody Reynolds-Shaw. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds-Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.